the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, We continue. We've been talking about race and race relations from a variety of perspectives throughout the show today, but we turn our attention this hour to uh, my guest from uh, UCLA, Professor of Law, Sociology, and Chicano Chicano Studies, Uh, She's the author of several books, but we're going to talk about her latest, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. Her name is uh, Laura Gomez. She joins me by phone. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Happy to be here. Um, Let me me ask this. Why is it important for us to think of uh, Latinos as a race? Because it allows us to talk about racism. So typically, um, or at least the conventional wisdom, is that we think about Latinos as an ethnic group, a nationality. Well, a group of nationalities. A group of many nationalities, right? Yes, thank you for that clarification, yes. Um, but we think about it in terms, we, the, again, the conventional story, I'm not saying everybody thinks this way, but I think most people have uh, historically and, and probably still today think this way, is we think about national origin, we think about ethnicity, and that allows us to kind of sidestep side, uh, um, the racism component with respect to Latinos. Now, what I what I mean by that is is if we if we think about um, Latinos being a kind of in a middle space between African Americans and uh, and whites or non Hispanic whites, as we sometimes hear that term. I've been using Latinos the phrase Western to... Europeans. Western European, yeah. I mean, I have. I have used that phrase in prior books, but it's one that I'm not I'm not using so much today. I mean, the phrasing is part of this fascinating story, right? Sort of how we refer to a group, and right now you're starting to hear like Latinx, and which is not a term that I particularly embrace, although I understand why some people do. Um, but uh, 
you know, it, it, it's this in-between status that allows sometimes some Mexican-Americans and other Latinos to pass as white and in some historical context to be treated as white and at the same time at other contexts and other places to be treated as a racial minority. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of dynamic that I'm, that I'm getting at in the book. And I know it's um, we we tend to do this with Asians too, who may come from many mm-hmm. different countries. Mm-hmm. And very often, if we assume, for example, someone is Chinese and they're from Japan or North Korea or something, um, they're very put off by that. And I've seen that same thing happen within the the Latin communities. Um, you know, if if you refer to somebody from Puerto Rico as Mexican or vice versa, you know, that, that there's some offense taken. As we as a country move toward identifying groups of, of people, um, and I'm talking about Asians and, and Latinx or Latinos, however you want to refer to it, um, are people within those groups beginning to self-identify that way? Um, yeah, there is that dynamic. Um, let me let me come back to that and just just follow up on a couple of things that you said in that transition, Tom. So, one is is just to emphasize for our listener, our listening audience, that when you say you know so and so is from you know, China or Japan, right, or from, say, Mexico or um, Honduras, you're, you're actually assuming something that is not quite accurate, and that is that most Latinos, 80% of them, were born in this country, right? So even though we were born in this country, the vast majority of us, and in in my case, even my parents and my grandparents. And by the way, my father went to high school in Melvindale, about an hour from Flint. So, um, <laughs> it's a small world, and, isn't it, Laura? It's a small world, and hello to all of my cousins and their kids if they're listening in Michigan. I don't know. Um, but the the fact that most Latinos were born here, the vast majority, but they're still thought of as immigrants, is part of this racial dynamic that I'm talking about. Now, the other thing I want to just mention is, is exactly what you pinpointed, the hierarchy within any group. Like, like you said, there's a, there's a hierarchy within, among Asian Americans, and there's a hierarchy among Latinos, and it often correlates with proximity to uh, Western European, to use your term, and to to Spain specifically, and thinking about one's uh, whiteness and one's closeness to Spanish identity, as opposed to one's closeness to African ancestry, because of the huge uh, of a number of slaves that were uh, forcibly taken to Latin America, and because of the huge number of indigenous people, right? So we have that ancestry, but people who are more indigenous or more um, African in appearance tend to be, you know, tend to be lower down in the hierarchy within the group. So that also influences how people 
self-identify, which is uh, obviously really important right now as we think about the census. And, and, and the reason that I bring that up is, is because um, I, I find that, that white people like myself wrestle with how best to identify with people. And if they don't, if there's some conflict about the way they identify, it makes it all that much more confusing. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's a, you know, that's a legitimate thing. I mentioned, and you mentioned, this Latinx term and, and you know, what that means, right? And these are shifting, these are shifting labels, right? So I've noticed that on my uh, university campus, a lot of the younger people are really embracing the Latinx term because they like the fact that it doesn't signal um, gender. gender, the way right. the word Latino with the O on the end, or Latina signifying women um, on the on the end, um, it doesn't it doesn't have that problem, right? And it also can encompass non-binary people. So the younger people like it. So some of the faculty are embracing it. But then when I go out in the world, and if I go to a market, those folks are not really embracing the term Latinx, right? So you always find these variations. You find it with African Americans. Do they prefer to be called black or do they prefer to be called African American? Obviously, historically, there were other terms that were used. Um, I was reading uh, over the 4th of July, uh, Thurgood Marshall, Justice of the Supreme Court, his bicentennial address where he, this was 1976, and he used the word Negro throughout, right? So there's there's various terms that are used for, for any group, and I think that what's happening right now with Latinos being currently 15% of the U.S. population, expected to be 30% of the U.S. population by um, 2050 or 2060, right, just that's around the corner, um, that uh, those who are not part of the group and the group itself those members of those Latinos themselves are becoming conscious of who they are and how they're seen, right? And so we're we're kind of all collectively going through this this period, as you said, of of, of learning and and questioning maybe our assumptions and how we how we might think about members of this group. Yeah, what happened to Hispanic? That was non gender and intended to be inclusive. Yes. Um, that, Absolutely. That seemed like Absolutely. a very comfortable and phrase. So the first time that Hispanic kind of came into the national lexicon was in 1980 when the census first, for the first time ever, counted Hispanics, Latinos all together, right? So it's a relatively new term used to apply to people that way. People used it before to apply to say literature or, you know, other kinds of things, right? But talking about, in terms of talking about a ethno-racial group in the United States, 1980 was the first time, which in sociological and, and historical terms and, and is, is, is relatively recent. But the students who are calling themselves Latinx today, they abhor the term Hispanic. They consider it a sellout term because it emphasizes 
because it's in English, there's all these jokes about, you know, um, for example, his panic. Dividing <laughs> 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 up the term into those syllables, syllables, and there's, it's it's very it's, it's by the at least by the politically um, uh, aware crowd, it's the less preferred term. So Latino became the more preferred term, and then the gender problem came back to us, right? Because of the language, the Spanish language. Sure. So that's the story about Hispanic. But it is, I mean, I could talk. Let me tell you, I could talk forever about that. Um, I even wrote my undergrad thesis back in 1986 um, about that very terminology, Tom. Yeah, I just, I just talk wondered. About ancient history. Yeah. Well, and yet not. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, <laughs> thank you. You must be around my age. <laughs> well, let's just say I was uh, old enough to have filled out that 1980 uh, census. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm proud to say I was, uh, I was too. <laughs> um, but let's, uh, I, I want to talk uh, more about the book and inventing Latinos. That's an interesting yes. term. Yes. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's it's a it's a it's meant to be you know provocative, right? Because we want we want a title to be provocative and get attention and and get people like you thinking about it just in the, and being curious about it just in the way that you are. Um, so it's it's inventing in the sense that racial categories, these, these terms and uh, these categories of identity, categories um, in terms of racial hierarchy, they don't actually exist in, say, in some nat- nat- in, in nature, in this kind of quote-unquote real sense. They exist because we we create them, right? We create the idea that people of African origin um, in Europe and in the New World are inferior because they are kidnapped and brought to be slaves, right? We, we, we create that idea. It has a particular political and historical and social context. And so I talk about Latinos in that in that regard, and it's really some of the dynamics that I've already mentioned are, are key to that, such as the census first counting uh, Latinos in 1980. Now, in 1975, were there Latinos in the United States? Of course there were. But in 1985, we could actually count them. We could actually say there are these many millions, right? It was, uh, I think, about 5% of the U.S. population at the time, which was probably an undercount, but, but in any regard, you know, once we could have a count of folks and we could name folks, and now there are some current controversies with respect to the 2020 census, Laura, as I'm sure you're reading. No. Yeah, so Laura, let, that's I, I, need, I, mean. I need to put a comma here because I have to go to break, but can you stick around for a few minutes? I want to talk okay. some more about uh, the new Perfect. story yes. of uh, American racism in the book Inventing Latinos by my guest, Laura Gomez. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in edgewise. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Stay there.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. I was telling you a little while ago about my wife, and I don't want you to be confused, but we were, I've been married more, more than once. In fact, I've been married three, three times. But my first two wives each died a very tra- tragic death. My first wife died from eating po- poison mushrooms. And my second wife died from a fractured skull. She wouldn't eat her mushrooms. 
you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsi than flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with the author of Inventing Latinos, Laura Gomez from UCLA. Laura, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you. Um, before the break, we were talking about some of the different terms and, and terminology uh, um, and, and that the preferred term now is Latin X because of uh, gender-related issues, and yet the book is Inventing Latinos. By using the word Latinos, don't you reinforce uh, something perhaps historical or perhaps stereotypical about um, Latinx people being uh, patriarchal? Well, so it's, I'm glad you asked that question, Tom. It's, it's very insightful. So let me go back first um, to what I said about Latinx. I said it's increasingly popular on university campuses, but when I go down to you know, the my grocery store and talk to someone or talk to somebody, you know, sort of not connected with the university, um, it's not a very um, legible term, um, if you will. Um, so in, in the Spanish language, when we say the masculine version uh, of the term, we are embracing both men and women. So um, so if we say mis padres, right, we're talking about um, both, I'm talking about both of my parents, um, my mother and my father, even though padre is the masculine term. Now, now, why is that historically? I'm sure it is because of the Spanish language being patriarchal, but I think most, uh, certainly most Western uh, European languages were those were all are were and probably are all patriarchal, right? So, so I think that there is a stereotype about say uh, machismo, but I think that that's more stereotype than true. You know, so in other words, when you look closely at a society, um, you tend to see that uh, rampant in the United States among U.S.-born folks. Um, as much as among uh, immigrants or any country that has a, a nativity elsewhere, you know. But, but we tend to think of ourselves as, oh, we're those progressive Americans, you know. Um, but if you look at things like how many women are on, say, corporate boards, um, those kinds of indicia tell, tell us what we don't want to see, right, that there still is that kind of entrenched patriarchy. And I didn't mean to uh, let whites off the hook on that patriarchal thing, <laughs> because we've been wrestling with the with the sure. term. We've sure. been wrestling with the term mankind. Yes, yes, yes. I know, and I always, always try to get to to catch myself. Um, you know, one of the ones that I have trouble with is when I say, "Who's manning the table?" Or you know, right? That's that's <laughs> the hard one. I have to just remember. I have to avoid that term, and I have to say staffing. You know, right? Like exactly. We, we, we police ourselves in all all sorts of ways with these things, but but there is a deeper 
you know, there is a deeper meaning to these terms. And one of the things that I'm getting at in the book is that we're we're missing an increasing tendency of Latinos to identify themselves racially as Latino. We're missing that in the census because of the way the census is divided. So if we, we've all, you know, most of us, have recently filled out the census form for 2020, and you may remember that there are two questions. There's one question that says, are you Hispanic slash Latino? And it's a yes or no question, and then if it's a yes, you're supposed to fill in, you know, are you Mexican-American, are you Puerto Rican, etc. cetera. Um, and then there's a second question following that that says, you know, what is your race, and gives you a list of groups, you know, white, African-American. It lists about 11 different Asian-Americans, so Chinese, Chinese-American, etc., right? And, and Native American going down the line, and then it says um, at the bottom, other. Well, one of the big puzzles that we have is that some 40% of Latinos choose other. So they're rejecting that they're white, they're rejecting that they're black, they're rejecting that they're Native American, they're in this kind of racial limbo. And that number has been very robust at around 40% for these wow. decades since 1980. Um, so such that... in what we would expect from the 2020 results is that the second largest racial group in the United States will be other, after whites. And, you know, that's pretty pretty startling, right? It, it tells us um, that we're not capturing something that's happening on the ground, right? And that something is that people prefer to identify racially as Latino. And that's partly because Others see us in that way, right? They categorize us in that way, whether it's a whether it's a institutional context like a police officer, or you know, a police officer arresting someone, or a teacher um, in say an elementary school, or um, somebody who is you know in all kinds of myriad of personal context as well, dating and mating, right, as we sociologists like to say. So those dynamics um, suggest that we should have another, another way of thinking about the race question, and that was proposed in 2020 but rejected by the Trump administration. You know, I was, I was glad to hear you say in the last segment um, to remind me and listeners that most of the people that we think of as Hispanic, Latinos, Latinx um, are not here illegally. <laughs> that, that many of them were born here. It reminded me of an episode of uh, Sanford and Son where Red Fox and his son, uh, Demond Wilson, are having a conversation. Demond Wilson is exploring his roots. And Fred Sanford says... Uh, well, my people come from St. Louis, <laughs> and and I just I, I just yeah. love that that line, and it and it speaks to this because um, something has happened to the Southwest that that was at one time very harmonious, and now 
seems to be, at least in the eyes of the rest of the country, not. Has something happened there? Is it is it just contemporary politics, or have things changed? So tell me, tell me a bit more, uh, Tom. So when you say uh, is not now seen as harmonious, what do you mean? And, and, and what do you mean by the Southwest? I remember traveling through. Terms or, I, I remember yeah. traveling through um, through Southwest states like. Uh, New Mexico and Arizona and, and, and Texas and seeing adobe architecture and roadside stands with indigenous people and Hispanics. Um, and, and everyone seemed to be living very comfortably together. Like it was, it was just part of the region's charm that it was diverse uh, and multinational uh, yeah. um now yeah. did i see that wrong and if not has something changed in in the eyes of the rest of the right. country right. no that is that is i i i really appreciate that elaboration uh tom because it helps me understand you know what you're what you're thinking about and in see, fact, I don't, that's very much the it's, it's very much the subject of a book that I wrote before this called Manifest Destinies, The Making of the Mexican-American Race, where I talk about the tri-cultural myth of New Mexico in particular, right? The notion that you had Anglos, which is what we call whites in, in New Mexico, um, uh, 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 Mexican-Americans and Native Americans, and they were living in this harmonious kind of world, right? It's, it's, I, uh, it, it's hard to make comparisons, but I want you to think of that as being in the category of the notion that, oh, uh, blacks were so happy on the plantations, right? It was such a good thing. Now, you know, like people got along, right? Now, I don't mean to say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not casting aspersions on you by saying that, right? I'm just saying that that's the that's kind of the no that's what I that's Laura that's what I want to understand because yeah. I did, had how an, did we get confused about that yes how, how did we get to this point where um, and, and I don't want to throw President Trump under the bus over his you know racist comments about you know rapists and gun runners and building the wall and all that that's that's bumper sticker stuff um, I want to talk about the real perception that Americans have about this um, this group, uh, about believing yeah. that they're all so, immigrants, that they're all, you know, working on farms and 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 and, right. and not right. part of our culture as they have been for many many decades and centuries even. Yeah, and it, seemed, um, and it seemed to be... Because 115,000 Mexican-Americans became, or Mexicans became American citizens in 1846 at the end of the U.S.-Mexico War. So let me give you two, two key points, and let's start with the most recent and work our way back. Okay. So what happened a year ago yesterday was the El Paso Massacre, right? So you had a white nationalist, go into a Walmart in El Paso, drive all the way from Dallas down to El Paso, a city that is 80% Latino. And he could have stopped anywhere 
along his way. It could have been a gas station. It could have been a fast food joint. He chose Walmart. And in that city, anywhere he would have stopped, he would have killed a lot of Latinos, both some who were Mexican nationals who were visiting for the day, some who were Mexican uh, immigrants, and many who were multi-generation Mexican-Americans. But he, he did it because he said he wanted to stop the, Mexi- the Hispanic, he used the term Hispanic, the Hispanic hordes and stop the takeover. And he, he really invoked Trump's language, right? So you're, you're absolutely correct that that hate is there. But I don't think Trump gets all the blame for this, because if you go back to, say, another point, go back 20 years to 2000, and you look at what Pat Buchanan was saying, uh, he was running for president, I think for the third time that year, or maybe that was the second time, but he did run for president three times for the GOP nomination. And he was writing books about the Mexican hordes crossing the border and the end of uh, Anglo-American cultural uh, dominance in the U.S., right? And so this isn't a new strand of thinking in the GOP. And frankly, it's not limited to the GOP, right? Historically, when we think about um, immigration policy and the kind of ebbs and flows of it, there has always been a chunk of the Democratic Party that also has wanted to create immigration policies that would allow for better, more effective exploitation of low-wage workers. In other words, the agenda that agribusiness had, right? Um, but it's been my understanding, Laura, that those yeah. those uh, um, uh, waves of uh, public policy have followed the economy. Well, yes and no. I think that you're right that there is that kind of wave. So, for example, in World War II, during World War II, there was a labor shortage, right, because men were in the military, were in the armed services. And so there was a program created called the Bracero Program. And Bracero coming from the Spanish word for arm, brazo, brazos, right? So this was laborers, and it was a program between the U.S. government and the Mexican government. And it actually existed um, for 20 years, so well beyond the war effort, right? So there was, there was that need for Mexican workers. But even during the midst of that program, so that program went from 1942 to 1962, in the 1950s, the Border Patrol and the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was a precursor to ICE, was pursuing a uh, deportation program called Operation Wetback, right? So at the same time that there was... (laughs) I haven't heard that phrase in a long time, Laura. (laughs) I haven't heard that phrase in a <laughs> long time. Yeah, and that was the government name for it, you know, <laughs> so I, I should have given your listeners a trigger warning, you know, on that, right? Because that is a, a racial slur. Um, now we use the term illegal. We use that term as a noun, right? Um, and that is a slur. Um, yeah. So it, 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 you can say that it kind of was, I think definitely economic trends play a huge, a huge role in this. But it's also, it's also bigger, bigger than 
then that, you know, it has its own kind of, kind of um, life. Uh, not, it doesn't just, it doesn't just follow the economy. It's not that, that simple. It's a little bit more um, complex relationship. And and it makes it I I think it makes it uh, more complicated uh, to get public policy that's consistent when mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. the economy impacts public policy the way it has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know that's actually really important in terms of thinking about immigration policy, right? So even though I've I've shared with our audience that Latinos are, 80% of Latinos are born in the United States, immigration policy is still a very important um, policy issue area for Latinos. And that is because 20% of Latinos are born elsewhere, and most of them, by the way, not undocumented, right? Um, But then there's also the children of those immigrants. That's another chunk of the population. And then there's also what we call mixed immigration status families, right? So a family where there's one person, one adult who's undocumented, and the rest of the family are um, citizens. And, And then there's also the fact that even though, say, I'm not an immigrant, my parents aren't immigrants, even my grandparents aren't immigrants, but we are, they're all, they're parents were immigrants, and I feel very close affinity for, um, for immigrants. Um, and, you know, uh, my son's father um, was an immigrant. And so those issues matter, and yet we have been unable to craft a, um, a fair, uh, comprehensive immigration reform policy at the federal level meaning that there's been a vacuum, and where has that vacuum, how has that been filled? It's been filled by state and local policies on immigration, both that are supportive of immigrants, like the sanctuary state movement, but also that are very uh, punitive toward immigrants. Um, And I don't know specifically if any of those have been in the Michigan area, but certainly nearby to Michigan, you've seen some of them in um, Ohio, throughout the South, you know, um, and even in places like, even in the Southwest, places like Arizona, right, with the uh, Show Me Your Papers bill that was, was enacted by the state uh, legislature in 2010, uh, which has, has now kind of come back to bite the GOP. And you just interrupt me any time, because I'm a law professor, Tom, and I'll just talk <laughs> on and on. So feel free to interrupt me at any time. But, you know, the political context in Arizona is very different today than 2010, right? And that, that anti-Latino legislation passed in 2010 by the Joe Arpaio wing of the GOP, you know, with the uh, support of, quote-unquote, moderate Democrats, that's come back to haunt the GOP. And we're seeing that play out right now in terms of the elections because all those Latinos who turned 18 between 2010 and 2020, guess what party most of them were registering for? Well, the Democratic Party, of course. Yeah. Well, not to say that there are Republican Latinos, right? Well, sure. Somewhere between 20 and 25% of Latinos voted for Trump last time around. 
you know, I predict that that number will be lower, but there's still going to be some, you know. But it has been bad news. Let's say, you know, this has been one area where it's been bad news for the Republicans. And I'll tell you, if the Democrats do take control of the Senate and of keep control of Congress, as expected, and take control of the White House, what is, if, if immigration, comprehensive and just immigration uh, reform is not at the top of their agenda, then it's going to be bad for the Democratic Party in the sense of there might be a move toward a more progressive third party um, alternative. And you saw that in the massive support that Sanders received from Latinos in states like Nevada and California, right? So, you know, there's going to be some serious pressure on uh, a, a President Biden if there is indeed one. Are there Latinx... Um public officials that are creating any kind of, of sense of uh, role modeling and and or leadership for the Latinx community? Oh, absolutely. Um, all, all over the place, right? But we haven't had the, we haven't, I would say that we haven't had in the political realm or the policymaker realm, we haven't had that kind of national leadership yet that has galvanized um, the group nationally the way that we have had for so many decades with African Americans, right? So you did have in the um, early 1970s Cesar Chavez with the United Farm Workers, right? But but he wasn't a policymaker, right? He was an activist, and that. That era of activism definitely produced various leaders, including Dolores Huerta, who is um, still with us and still a very powerful voice for activism. But what you tend to see is you tend to say, okay, well, we can talk about California. So, for example, somebody who's, I think, going to probably remain, well, in California, which, of course, California is 40, 40 million people, right? So, um and California is 30% Latino now, as opposed to in 2060, when the rest of the nation will be 30% Latino. Um, and so Latinos are very uh, well positioned in the state. There have been multiple uh, Latino um, speakers of the House. Um, and some of the Latinas, the, the women, um, uh, Latinx women who are in the state legislature right now, to me, they are they are the future Karen Basses, right? So Karen Bass, who is also who's been on on Biden's VP list from California, uh, from South LA, who organized was a community organizer, um, really doing work on Black Brown unity. Um, she was Speaker of the House in the California Legislature, and we're going to see this generation right now that's in the state legislature. They're going to be the future Karen Basses, in particular the women. Laura, um, uh, Laura, I have to put. There are others. I have to put another comma here, but uh, can I get you to stick around, and we'll talk a little bit more to to finish up our conversation. Sure. I look forward to it. 
Excellent. My guest is uh, Laura Gomez from UCLA, the author of Inventing Latinos, a, a new story of American racism. And we'll talk some more about that after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual play dates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us, at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, 
table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as uh, we get into the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is from UCLA and the author of a book called Inventing Latinos, Laura Gomez. Laura, thanks for uh, sticking around and spending this much time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tom. Laura, during the uh, the last segment, you, you asked me to interrupt you uh, at some point, and... I just wanted you to know I make it a habit not to uh, <laughs> not to interrupt people who know more than I do. Um, oh, anyway, very kind. Anyway, um, I want to get back to something I asked you very early uh, in the hour in, in the interview, and that's about the title of the book, Inventing Latinos. Um, it's it's sort of a call to action, I or, or I get the impression that it is. Is it? Yes, yes. I think it, that is definitely part of it. And for example, um, I think in terms of the politics, what we were talking on right about right before the break, right? That it is a call to action in the sense that I think Latinos need to make their voices heard. And I think they have been making their voices heard during this primary season, as I said, with, with the, the strong support for, for Sanders, right? And so I think, I think that, and, and there were high turnouts as well, right? So I, I hope that there is going to be that kind of energy for, for November. I do think that this language of these latest, you know, Trump continues to play games, right? The Supreme Court told him a year ago he couldn't, ask people's citizenship on the census. Um, but the other day, last week, he said, well, I'm just not going to count immigrants when we give our final tally, right? So in other words, they would be included in the census, but those people would be excluded from the counts presented to Congress, um, which would be a travesty and which ultimately will be against the law. So you think, well, is he doing this to depress responses or is he doing this to uh, bolster his his base and make it look like he's uh, 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 flouting the Supreme Court's you know ruling on that question. But either way, I think it's going to depress participation. So we're going to have an undercount that is going to be challenging, especially for states with large Latino populations. Um, 
including the four largest state, states in the country, California, uh, Texas, Florida, and New York. Um, I guess it's also a call to action in that I talk about reparations for Latinos and what that looks like. Um, now, it's probably, you know, we don't have the time right now to go into all of the historical evidence that I provide for why reparations are needed, but I advocate, for example, the um, admission of Puerto Rico as a state. Um, Puerto Rico has been a colony of the United States since 1898, which should be shocking to the conscience, right? Um, I advocate for um, granting uh, uh, citizenship to all of those um, immigrants currently living here. You know, and we can, we can talk about what the particulars of that look like, you know, looking at criminal records, sure. Um, looking at um, length of time, sure. Um, I advocate for, um, uh, yeah, just interrupt me as you need to, because I know time is, is short too, Tom. Well, actually, uh, I'm glad you took that, that breath because we are, for all intents and purposes, out of time, Laura, but I've been enjoying this conversation. I wish we'd have mentioned uh, reparations a half an hour ago. Um, but that leads uh, nicely into something I always do with guests, and that is give them uh, an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, this is a great book um, and a great place to start, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. But you have some other writings and uh, probably um, links to other uh, resources as well. Do you have a website? Uh, yes, I do. It's www.lauraegomez.com. Um, and you can also find information about the Critical Race Studies program at UCLA Law at www.uclalaw.com, or .edu, sorry, <laughs> .edu. And the book can be um, ordered at Amazon.com. Um, it's it's uh, coming out in a couple of weeks, and getting a lot of good uh, good attention, so fingers crossed. Um, it's a message that people, I think, are, are open to right now, given the, the way that this summer has um, progressed. Well, Laura, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I enjoyed it. Take care. That was uh, Laura Gomez. She is a professor of law, sociology, and Chicana Chicano Studies at UCLA. She is the author of Manifest Destinies, Mapping Race, and Misconceiving Mothers. She lives in Los Angeles, and uh, her new book is uh, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. And uh, I'll be back to wrap things up in just a moment. Again. If 
it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests this past hour. Uh, great hour spent with uh, uh, the author of um, Inventing Latinos, Laura Gomez from UCLA. Before that, uh, talking with Debbie Irving and Marguerite Pennick Parks about the uh, 21-day racial equity habit building challenge. And then before that, a very uh, enlightening and uh, fun conversation with the author of a new book for young adults um, that's called uh, Paola Santiago and the River of Tears by author Taylor K. Maya. And uh, she is uh, part of the uh, Rick Riordan Presents series. Pretty interesting. Anyway, uh, thanks to everybody who tuned in and uh, also to all my guests. Um, And with that, uh, it's just about time to head down the hall, but join us tomorrow. Tomorrow is... uh, Oh, and don't forget, uh, today is uh, primary election day, so don't forget to vote. But uh, And we'll talk about the election a little bit tomorrow when... uh, Uh, Let's see. First, we'll have uh, Chris Douglas, uh, economist from the University of Michigan, Flint. And he'll be followed by our weekly roundtable, Armchair Politics is back, with former Flint Mayor Dane Walling joining roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki on the left and uh, Henry Hatter on the right. So join us for that. And uh, that's Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head down the hall to the living room. So with that, see you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. Program is a live variety show 
We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.